Well, good afternoon, brethren, and welcome to the happy, blessed day of Pentecost. We're just doing a sound test, and I see uh, that you are hearing the piano. So we'll just continue uh, playing the piano for the next five minutes, and we'll begin shortly at 1.30 Central, 2.30 Eastern Time. And just uh, greetings. I see Denise, uh, Sylvie Fredholm. Greetings, RJ and Becca Ernie. Let's see who else I see. I see Stephanie. Neen37. I don't think I've seen Neen37 here before. Welcome. Good to see you. Let's see. Stephanie. Lid the Kid. Mike125. Al, CW, MJG, Sabbath Keeper, and Terry. Greetings, everybody. I'll just go on Facebook and see who we have over there as well.
Well, we're just about to get started. I understand that uh, the piano is coming through. We're just having a little bit of trouble with the connection on the piano, so it may not be coming through as fully as we would like, but I think it's uh, good enough for us to proceed. So we'll be starting services in just a few moments. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon to another Sabbath day. It is Tabu Sabbath, Tabu Sabbath this weekend. And we're so happy to be all together, especially during this difficult time, coronavirus. But we're so grateful and so happy for this technology and people who work, who work so hard just to provide us with the platform so we can come together and worship together, especially worship God as such a special, wonderful day as this day of Pentecost today. So with you, Join us today, maybe for the first time, special and a hard welcome to you. It will be joining us for the from the beginning for the numbers for the seven weeks. Thank you for becoming our global family. And as we know, there is no border to no borders to technology and there is no borders, especially to the Holy Spirit. He is whatever he has that we have the freedom to praise and to worship God. So let's just bow your heads as we begin today's Pentecost service with the opening prayer. Just bow your head and give thanks to God. Great God and loving Father, we've been counting not just the weeks, but the days from the day one. And we were just so excited as we count up towards this special and specific day, the conclusion of the Feast of Weeks, as we call the Day of Pentecost. And thank you, Father, to explaining us through this special time, through the seven weeks. We heard so many, so many important messages that opened our minds and our hearts to your truth. And Father, we ask us not just for this day on Pentecost, but as we're going to finish this day, as we're going to finish this count, Father, we ask that through this knowledge that we received through so many different messages, all these statements and scriptures and all this understanding, Father, we ask you that through this source, through this special resource that we have from you, through this Holy Spirit, Father, will help us to practice all these things in our daily life. And Father, especially at this time as we come together as a global family, without the borders, Father, we come together to praise you and to worship you. Father, we ask you that on this day, You'll keep the technology working, Father, that you keep our hearts and our minds open to this message, the last message that you're going to hear today during this last Feast of Weeks, Father. And they open our mind and our hearts so we could listen. They can really listen a message that will able to change us, change us for good, change us forever, Father. And as the first fruits, Father, you require people who are called overcomers, Father. And through your Holy Spirit, we pray, Father, that all of us will become overcomers, useful to your work, Father, to Son Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for so many wonderful blessings during the seven weeks, last Sabbath and this Sabbath, Father, 
And we ask you all these things in other name, by Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, brethren, for joining us one more time. And now, at this time, we'll have a, we'll have a song. So we have a church hymnal. You can turn to page 31. If you don't have it, it's okay. You will see the, you will see, you will see the, the words on the screen. Just sing aloud and join us in this beautiful song, The Church is One Foundations, on page 31. Enjoy. Wow, what a beautiful words. Thank you, Sister Jennifer. Wonderful music. Now, this time we'll have a scripture reading. And the scripture to, scripture reading today is selected from us from the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And it will be read to us by Brother Jim French from Ottawa Congregation. Thanks, Jan. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt... The same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai, and it pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a particular treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Thank you, Brother Jim. We appreciate. And now let me just cover quickly the announcements. So try to limit the number of announcements so I can give you a little bit kind of short offertory message today. We know it's a holiday. But let's start with the announcements first. Just please remember the weekly Bible study every Wednesday at 730 with Pastor Agent as he's taking through this fascinating study through the book of Judges. It's really fascinating study. I will encourage you if you haven't, if you haven't done so, please. It's a very fascinating study. Also, please join us next week, next Sabbath at the same time at 2.30 for another Sabbath services coming from the Burlington, Ottawa congregations here. And today, as I mentioned, today is a high holiday. It's a Pentecost. So I'll just give you a very quick, I don't want to call it an operatory message, but just take it for whatever it is. I'd like to open your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 16. This chapter is very well known. And you hear the scriptures many times over. You've been in a God church for some times. You know exactly if I say Deuteronomy chapter 16, you know exactly where I'm going to go. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 16, if you have your Bible open, let's start at verse 16. It's a specific commandment here when God says, Three times, three times a year, all your male shall appear before the Lord your God, in the place which he chooses. And it's a specific list of this. Which time, at what time of the year? At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacle. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Verse 17. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings of the Lord your God, which, we, which he has given you. So as we go to this text, the first thing that should appear, that should appear, the first thing that should come up in our minds right away, it says that we shouldn't appear before God on day like that, on the day of Pentecost, conclusions of the Feast of Weeks, empty-handed, which means without offering anything to God. And the other part that God mentioned here is that he doesn't expect more than what we able to give according to his blessing. And for this particular day, the day of Pentecost, there is even more specific instruction. The same chapter, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 16, but we're going to read verses 9 through 12. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 through 12. And this is a specific instruction for the Pentecost, for the day of Pentecost, and for the Feast of Weeks. Verse 9. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering from your land, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And verse 11, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levites who is within your gates, the strangers, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Verse 12. 
Very important. And you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe the statutes. And again, as God says, not just on this day, on the Feast of Pentecost, that we should give something, but throughout the seven weeks, as we collecting our harvest, we should always appear before God with something, with a gift that is called a free gift offering, a free will gift offering. So, brethren, just in conclusion here quickly, I know that many of us, many of us have been affected by this coronavirus. I know that many of us lost our jobs, you know, lost our revenues. And it's many of us, it's difficult to survive from the first of the month to the last of the month. But I hope that you'll be able to find something, you know, and give it to God as a gift, as a free gift offering, you know, because in return, we received so much, as we learned through the last, last seven weeks. So may God bless you. Hopefully this coronavirus is going to go, go away very soon. And I hope and pray that not many of us, brothers and sisters in the church, will lose their job, will, will lose their employment. And I hope that this coming months to the summer, summer months will become a very productive. May God bless you all. And thank you for your generous giving. We can do it physically, but we can do it online. May God bless you all. So at this time, brethren, we'll have a special music. And right after special music, we have the main message for today, entitled, I Do, Then What? by Pastor Mori Palmatier. Let me, let me give you one more time. I Do, Then What? by Pastor Mori Palmatier. But before we go to the main message, we are so blessed to have a special music today by Sister Lori and Brother Patrick from Ottawa Congregations, entitled, Here I Am. So we'll have a special music first, and right after the special music, you'll see Pastor Murray with his message, I do, then what? Enjoy the music. Broken parts, you redeem. 
song to uh, praise God with. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to our local congregations, others from across Canada, many from the U.S. and possibly even overseas. We do get often brethren from beyond our continent that join us. Welcome to our Feast of Pentecost service. Many of you may have seen uh, earlier services today. John Reedy spoke in Tyler, uh, Wayne Hendricks spoke in Medina, or maybe you were part of your own local uh, service, but thank you for making us Part of your Feast of Pentecost commemoration today. Thank you also, in addition to that wonderful piece of special music, to the beautiful opening hymn we sang that was very inspirational. Uh, Again, what a very inspirational beginning to this service. And welcome to everyone far and wide. I remember September 3rd, 1995, like it was yesterday. This year, my wife and I celebrate 25 years of marriage. Not as long as some of you, but in today's day and age, the world would say we're playing with house money now. I'm just very grateful that God brought her into my life. But I remember that day very vividly. It was the Sunday of a long weekend. I woke up that morning and my senses were heightened. I can, I can still hearken back to the tingly feeling I got when I woke up that morning. I remember feeling like I was watching a movie about myself. My wife's brother and I went for breakfast that morning. I even remember where that, I still remember where that was. I remember what I ordered, what I ate. We then showered, dressed, and made the hour-long trip to Port Colburn. I won't bore you with the rest of the details, but that day stands out as a day that I simply can't forget. What I do remember about that day is wrapped up in a line of an old country song by Colin Ray. Some of you may know him. In a song, he sang this line. He said, for a moment, the whole world revolved around one boy and one, one girl. I remember seeing her at the top of the aisle. 
I remember what it was like to say our vows. I remember the songs that we selected at various points of the day. I remember our first dance. How I wish I could go back and relive it with the perspective that I have now on life. There are many things to commemorate about this day of Pentecost. The law being given to Israel on Mount Sinai, the thunderings and the celestial miracles that accompanied the event, and those celestial miracles that provide a direct link for us to the day of Pentecost we read about in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit was given, when it was given in wider disbursement to those who would repent and choose to follow God. These events are all part of the story, along with many, many other lessons that we learned. Over the last seven weeks, as Brother Jan mentioned in his opening comments, here in this particular service, those of you who joined us saw messages that were built upon one another. Began way back, if you recall, with a message about the Feast of Weeks, all the way from London, England, by Pastor George Ramakant. Subsequent messages have focused on the story of God's chosen people. His chosen people who now today have agreed through baptism to become part of that covenant group. That story in the messages we heard was covered in various ways, in general terms, and specifically as it relates to the concept of true freedom. And we even yesterday learned how that story of God's covenant relationship with Israel fits into the the narrative of the story of Job. So over the last seven weeks, we've learned quite a bit. This afternoon, as we close out this spring festival season that began way, way back, more than 50 days ago, with our commemoration of the Passover service, I would like to tell the story of the marriage covenant God made with Israel. When we fully grasp this marriage covenant story, everything else starts to make sense. Why we celebrate this day makes sense. Why the Ten Commandments were given on this day makes sense. Why the Holy Spirit was given to a wider audience on this day to those who who would repent and choose this way of life makes sense. How we fit into the story as first fruits, very important word today, how we fit in makes sense when you understand the story of the marriage covenant God made with Israel. And more importantly, as we exit these, this feast of weeks, where do we go from here? That all makes sense when you understand this story. So if you're looking for a title to this message, following along the theme of recent messages, I've entitled it, I do, now what? uh, Our brother Jan said, then what? I I slipped him up there a little bit. I changed it at the end. We're going to call it, I do, now what? Let me start with a word of explanation as we begin. Analogies are meant to teach us lessons, but are not all-encompassing. There's much more to this story that comes in the future the marriage supper of the land, the bride making herself ready, all sorts of of other nuances to this analogy. So we're not going to cover the analogy as a whole. We're going to stick specifically to the story of how how and why God made this marriage covenant with Israel on this day. And 
and the significance it has for us. We're going to begin at Jeremiah 31, of all places. Jeremiah 31. We've got lots to cover today. As we did over the last number of weeks, we're going to cover the scriptures from the Holy, the Holy Writ in story-like fashion. Jeremiah 31 and verse 32, or sorry, verse 31 and verse 32 is where we're going to begin. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day, that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. We're not going to divert much here, but this links the covenant God made with Israel with the story as it takes place on this day in the year that Christ died and was resurrected, covered in Acts chapter 2. But several, as we, as we consider this, several, including that, including one of our, our dear elders, Vance Stinson, have covered that this is a renewed covenant. This is a renewed covenant. And that's a very important to the story. That's why we started here. Let's go back to, now we've got, we've made that link, that initial link. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 19, where our brother Jim French read to us from. Exodus chapter 19. And pick up the story here. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Now pay attention to these words as they relate to the covenant. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. It sounds to me that God is courting Israel here. Now, to our young people, this word courting is a really, really old term. In fact, I'm not even sure I understood courting when when I was getting to know my future wife. But it sounds like God here is courting Israel. Telling her all that he will do for her if she agrees to come into covenant with him. But it really didn't begin there either. Let's go back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Genesis 12 and in verse 1. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. Thought I lost the camera there, sorry. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you 
and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all, in you all, the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we're starting to get a, a picture here of this, this covenant blessing that we've talked about before. Let's keep the story going and go forward to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And we won't deviate too much from the text here. We've got a lot to cover. Genesis chapter 15, picking up the story. Years later, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God made promises to our forefather Abraham that he was about to fulfill. And we've seen these. We've talked about this many times. These promises that God made to Abraham were then part of the same promises that he made to Israel that we read about in Exodus 19. But you know what? It really didn't start there either. It didn't start there either. Let's go back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4. Genesis chapter 4. And we'll pick it up in verse 25. After the story of Cain and Abel and all that happened there, man's uh, Adam and Eve's fall, subsequent to subsequent after that the the story of Cain and Abel verse 25 and Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and named him Seth for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed he has appointed another seed for me Abel whom Cain killed she didn't see Cain as her seed It was Seth that was the seed. And let's notice something a little bit about Seth. As for Seth, to him also a son was born, and his name, his name, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And we've studied before that this word call is really proclaim. Proclaim the name of the Lord. So it was through Seth's line that the name of God was proclaimed. We know uh, we covered this before, how Cain's line went off into other things like music making and metallurgy and all those other things they did. But it was Seth's line, the seed that Eve referred to, that began to proclaim the name of God. We then move. That's where the story begins for the purposes of this sermon. Let's go to Genesis 11 and pick up the story of Shem. Shem, the descendant of Noah. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. And he begot Arphaxad. Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. And after he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. 
After he got Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. So we see the progression, and we, we don't have time to go through the entire progression, but Abel was killed, so God blessed Adam and Eve, blessed Eve with Seth, who replaced Abel. Through Seth, followed that down through Noah, after the flood, through his son Shem, we get this lineage here. And we see Eber. Interestingly enough, it was the origin of the name Hebrew. Abram was first called uh, a Hebrew in Genesis 14. So we're starting to see, as man repopulates the earth after the flood, God is looking down on this vast earth and seeing how many people there are. And we see, even before this, the evil that man had started, many men had started to develop through Nimrod. So God is looking through this vast earth. When I first met my wife, it was through a church hockey program we had way back in the day. And way back in the day, for those of you who go way back to our roots in the Worldwide Church of God, we had a very large and very vibrant sports program. I wish we had something, wish we were blessed enough to have something like that today for our youth. But I played goal in our church hockey team. And I saw one day from the ice, I saw her in the stands. I was, it was that we played every Saturday night. And I saw her during a break and play in the stands. And I knew I just had to meet her. I just had to meet her. God, as he's planning this covenant and how to redeem mankind, surveys the earth. And this plan of redemption, as we know, is told to us in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, was in place from the very foundation of the world. But how was it put into place? God surveys the earth, looking around at all the people that live in it, and pinpoints exactly who he will work through. I'm going to work through him. We're going to start there. One of the most famous storylines in fiction is the story of the wealthy gentleman who finds a poor, unkempt woman, looks beneath her current situation, and sees all that she can become, takes her in, cleans her up, and together they end up both helping each other become better than who they were previously. We see this storyline in writings like Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, Pretty Woman, and I'm sure many, many other stories that I'm not aware of, movies since uh, Pretty Woman came out, perhaps stories before that, writing stories and, and novels that follow along the same script. Scholars will tell you that this story goes back to ancient Greek mythology. That's where George Bernard Shaw first coined, uh, took the term Pygmalion. It really goes back much farther than this. And it was ripped from the pages of your Bible. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 16. As we look through the story of the covenant people. And as you consider my comments earlier. That God was looking, surveying the world for someone to work through. Much like as I'm innocently playing hockey. 
as I did every Saturday night. I look up and all of a sudden I see someone I just had to meet. Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to read the first 14 verses here. We may skip through this a little bit because of, of time's sake. But let's read how God describes his love for his covenant people. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are far from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field where when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. This sounds eerily similar to these storylines. When I passed by you, God says, and saw your struggling in your own blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. And in verse 8, he continues, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered you. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water, and I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. And I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. What a far cry from when he first found her. You succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, but was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed upon you, says the Lord God. What a vision God had for his bride when he surveyed the earth and found that one person he would begin to work through and then develop these series of nations and peoples that he promised Abraham. We sang in that first hymn, about from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. God sought his bride. And he told us about it here in Ezekiel. Let's move forward to Acts chapter 2 in the story. Acts chapter 2. We spoke earlier about the new covenant mentioned in Jeremiah 31. And as, as I did say, many, including our brother Vance has spoken to this, spoken to us that this is very much a renewed covenant. That the, and this renewal process begins here in Acts chapter 2. Well, it actually began much earlier with Christ's physical birth. Christ's physical birth. But for time's sake, we got to skip through a few pages. Much like I did at times when I was reading my kids' bedtime stories and I was extremely tired. Sometimes pages got skipped. We're going to do that here today and skip through to Acts chapter 2 to pick up the story. In verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This was the concluding part of Peter's first first sermon on that day, when he brought to light all that God's covenant people did to Jesus Christ, all that they didn't live up to in their covenant promises over the course of their history. He concludes in verse 36 with this statement, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. And when they heard this, that statement, when they heard that statement, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And what did Peter say to them? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Another important topic that we often talk about on this day. For the promise. The promise is to you and to your children. And to all who are afar off. As many as the Lord your God will call. What promise is he talking about? The Holy Spirit is part of that promise. We know earlier in Acts chapter 1. That he told them to wait and tarry until the promise of the Comforter. That promise also goes all the way back to the covenant God made with Abraham. And that renewed covenant that we read about in Jeremiah 31. Let's go to Romans 11 as we continue the story. As you're seeing here, we're, we're surveying the scriptures for the story of the covenant people. Romans chapter 11. We're going to briefly touch on something here because it's very important to the conversation. We certainly don't have time to go off on too much of a, of a tangent on what Romans 9 through 11 really talks about. But study Romans 9 through 11. And there are many, many sermons in, in our archives from various ministers that talk about the importance and what really happened here in Romans 9 through 11. And to understand that the covenant is renewed and that we're all part of the same covenant God made with Abraham. Let's read a few verses here just to get how, how we link promises God made to Abraham through Jeremiah 31 into Acts 2. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, referring back to physical Israelites that turned their back on God. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. And continue, we, don't, we won't take time to, to read the rest of that, but we can see the importance here of why Gentiles were allowed into the covenant. Because God still had his eye on his holy people, even though they turned their back on him. And verse 22 hints at some expectations that God has. 
Verse 22 tells the grafted in people, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you that you've accepted the invitation into the covenant goodness if you continue in his goodness. If you continue in his goodness. So there's an expectation for God to continue to be part of God's covenant people. Let's go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Yesterday, as you turn to Ephesians 5, we heard about the story of Job and how it is symbolic of Christ and the church. Fascinating, fascinating point that Pastor Adrian made at the end of his message, linking terminology that is used in the book of Job with similar terminology that is used in the Torah. And we often use this passage, use this section of scripture in marriage counseling, whether it's premarital counseling or postmarital counseling or helping folks through or just discussing the concept of marriage through studies and sermons and, and various presentations. But I see something very interesting when I read this as it pertains to what we're going to talk about today. Verse 32 tells us this entire concept of marriage. This is a great mystery, but I speak specifically concerning Christ and the church. So marriage is a bit of an analogy in this case where it helps us understand the relationship between Christ and the covenant people. But let's look at something interesting. Let's go back to verse 22. Since the body of Christ, and is otherwise known as the Israel of God, as we just read about in Romans 11, represent the bride in this analogy, in this story. Let's read what God expects of the bride. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And we're talking specifically about here, about the mystery concerning Christ and the church. So this section of scripture in this, in, in this context refers to all of us, men and women, the entire body of Christ, are to submit to Christ, our husband, our future husband. Submit to him as our Lord. Then as you read, and we won't take time to read it, look at everything else that Christ will do for us. For us, there really isn't anything else to do but submit. That's the only expectation. I'm shocked here in this at this uh, presentation to wives and husbands that the only command to the wife is one thing, submit. And as the future bride of Christ, as the people who have made covenant to this, this marriage that God gave to Israel, and we were grafted in, the only thing expected of us is to submit. If we submit, look at everything the Christ will do for us. Look at everything that he holds himself to. And all he asks is we submit. But submit today is a dirty word. Nobody likes to hear this word submit. But let's understand it, this word submit, in the context of the marriage covenant of God and his chosen bride. Let's see what God means. By this word, submit. The only thing he asks in this mystery of Christ and the church, Christ and the covenant people. Let's go back to Exodus 19 where we were. Exodus 19. Verse 
to quickly review another part to this story. Exodus 19, verse 10. And we'll see as they prepare for this day that they will become part of the covenant people. It seems eerily similar to all that we go through here in our physical marriages to prepare for our wedding day. The Lord said to Moses, verse 10, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai inside of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall be surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near to the mountain. This is going to be a very special, special, special day. So prepare yourselves accordingly. Prepare yourselves accordingly. Let's remind ourselves what he was talking about. Verse 5, same chapter. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. Therefore, we become inheritors of all the earth because of our connection to him through this marriage covenant. That's all we need to do is obey his voice and submit. It's the only thing asked of us. And look at all that he will do for us. So where does he begin to ask us what it means to obey his voice? Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And recall from last week's message by our brother Jan, this preamble here in verse 1 and 2. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And he covered why this was such an important part of the law, this preamble. Like, as he mentioned, constitutions have preambles to them. Recall the reason. Recall what we read in Ezekiel 16, what we covered earlier with Seth and Shem, all the way down to Abraham, all of Exodus. I came and I rescued you. Don't forget, as you start to hear my expectations, don't forget that I came and I rescued you. I found you soiled and dirty. And I took you and I saw the beauty. I could see the beauty if we just cleaned you up and washed off the blood and anointed you with oil and put you in good, clean clothes and fed you. I can see the beauty that is there. So what does he expect of us? Let me paraphrase in story terms. Number one, don't stray. I'm all you need. Think of this as a husband courting his wife and convincing her to follow him, to become part of a marriage covenant with him. This is the story we start to see. Number one, don't stray. I'm all you need. Number two, don't create any physical likenesses of me. I'm so much more than that. I can't be boxed in. And if you do, it will cause you to focus on the object instead of me. So don't do that. Number three is very, very, very important. I give you my name. Wear it with pride. Wear it with pride. Don't abuse it or bring shame to it. Number four. Let's set aside one day a week that's just for us. We're together all the time. We talk back and forth, but there's a lot that we do. Once a week, 
Let's stop all the outside work and focus on us. And then throughout the year, I'm also going to throw in some additional extra vacation days where we have even more one-on-one time together. We're going to disperse those throughout the year at appointed times. Number five, this family thing. This is how we're going to keep this going generation after generation. So value your parents and teach your children to do the same and make this a family rule. Number six, value life. Value life. Number seven, value fidelity. Number eight, value trustworthiness. Number nine, value honesty. And number 10, value each other. Don't get jealous over what someone else has. I'm giving you all you need. I ha- Look what he read in chapter 9, or chapter 15 and verse, chapter 19 and verse 5. All the earth is mine. Giving it all to you. So don't get, get jealous, but value each other. Then the next three chapters, we, we call chapters 21 through 23, We'll paraphrase those as well. There are a few more things I want you to know first before you say yes to this, before you agree to this marriage covenant. Mostly, I want you to know how I expect you to interact with me during our times together and how I expect you to interact with each other. It's really important that we maintain a positive, productive home life together, a productive assembly together. Back to chapter 19, verse 4. We'll read it again. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. He then proceeds to tell us all about these things, everything, the, the ten, and then the subsequent interactive, how expectations for interaction. Do you think you can do this? Do you, is this too much to handle? Or do you think this is doable? If so, I will give you the world if you just agree to do the, if you just agree to abide by these certain conditions about how we're going to act, how we're going to treat each other, how you're going to treat each other. Can you do that? You just keep reflecting me and be happy with all that I give you and this will work out just fine. Does that, does that sound good? Exodus 24, verse 3. So Moses came and told all, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen to to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, which is in the basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. If you've ever been married, you sign a register, and you sign a document that legally binds you. He took took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. 
And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. I would like to think that most children want to hear the story of how their parents met. I know my parents' story, and I even know the story of my grandparents. They're not always exciting stories, but they're our stories. They're our stories. They link us to the past. On the 20th anniversary of our meeting, my wife and I, we took our kids out for dinner. And then because we had moved back to the location, to the city where we met, we took them to the very spot we were standing when we met and talked to them about our story, that this was our story, and now it is their story. I would like to think that our story here matters too. This story of the coming together of God and Israel isn't just their story. It's ours. It's our story. That's the I do part of the story. Now what? Now what? Well, thank you for, thank you for asking. We're going to answer that. Where do we go from here? The quick answer, the honest answer, is simply open this up and turn it anywhere. Open it up and begin reading and take note of where God is speaking to his people. But, do you know what I find interesting? Often, and I use the word often, it may be everywhere, but I don't want to be wrong in commenting on the Holy Word. So I'm going to give myself a little bit of room and say often. Often, when the Bible, when it references the marriage covenant of God and his covenant people, it's accompanied by reminders about how we can fulfill our part. Let's take a look at a couple of places. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. As we consider the question, now what? We understand, we've seen this, this, the story, the story of our ancestors and how this marriage covenant that we are been grafted into became part of our story. Now what? First Peter chapter two. And we are literally Jumping into the middle of the context here. Feel free to back up all the way to the beginning of his letter, as we did with Job yesterday, to get the full context. But we're going to jump into the middle of the letter here. And he uses, beginning in verse 9, he uses some of the same verbiage that is used in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, that we've read several times already today. Verse 9 says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. This is why we know we are connected back to that covenant, that it was a renewed covenant. Because it's the same promise he made back then. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He's covering the I do portion. He's reminding them, reminding us that we are part of this covenant. He then answers the question, now what? Beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. 
Remember those first 10 rules, those first 10 communiques? One was about fidelity. He's covering it here. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Have your conduct, your behavior, how you interact with people, with God and with each other. Have it honorable among the Gentiles. When others from outside the covenant look in, let them look at the marriage covenant you're part of and say, I want that. I want that. That looks, that, that, that looks, speaks, and smells of happiness. That when they speak against you as evildoers, that if some, and we see that today, if some aren't impressed by it, but are turned off by it, that they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That through their scorn, they may actually glorify God because they're scorning against good. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You want to stop all this nonsense, this foolish talk that we hear, especially it just increases. Just this last week, we know what's going on out in the world. You want just to quell the talk here? Don't get involved in that stuff. Through By doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, that's not the purpose. But as bondservants of God, honor all people. Love the brotherhood. That's agape. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the king. Ephesians 4. What do we do? Start there with what we read about in 1 Peter. Let's go back to Ephesians 4. I recall we were in Ephesians 5 where we talked about the mystery of Christ and the church. When he talks about this mystery, the covenant that we are part of, he often, often includes his expectations. Let's begin in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Walk differently. We talked about that way back. The first thing we talked about was my expectations of how you should behave. And that's all I asked of you. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness and greediness. And we see that in our society, a society that was built upon Judeo-Christian principles, has given itself over to lewdness and greediness and uncleanliness, willingly, willingly. Has, has given themselves over. But if you have not learned, but if you, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And then Pastor Adrian yesterday covered verses 20 through 24. So we'll let that stand. Let's drop down to verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. And don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. He's expanding upon 
what he covered when they when they first became part of the, when the, the covenant people first became part of the covenant back in Exodus. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Don't, don't steal. Be trustworthy. You know what? Work so that when you work, you'll appreciate what you have and then help others. All part of how we interact. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Keep your tongue clean. Only what is only proceed out of your mouth what is good and necessary for edification. That it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another. Replace all that negative action, that negative feeling, that negativity. Replace it with kindness. Be tenderhearted. Forgive one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. This is all in context of the mystery of Christ and the church. So now what? Where do we go from here? Pick there, if if not First Peter. Pick anywhere. Open your scriptures. What else? Could we think of? Here's some other thoughts. Just random thoughts. Serve the body where you are gifted. And we don't have time to take, to go off into scriptures for each of these points. So make mental note of them. As I said, open the word of God and find a place to start to understand where we go from here. But serve the body where you are gifted and find out where you're gifted from others. Because they can tell you where they've been blessed by you. Don't assume you know where you're gifted. Because you might not be gifted there. And you don't want to serve where God hasn't gifted you. You want to serve where God has gifted you. Because he has placed you in the body where it pleases him. So find out from others where you're gifted. Be a conveyor of truth. And a world that is bent on self-destruction. And blaming God for it. And we see how they blame Christians, how Christian, if it's not blamed, they're certainly completely disregarded as being archaic and unnecessary. Don't get caught up in the taking of sides in worldly matters, except to use it as a place to defend your God and to perhaps show others the right way to be. Remember when we talked about not abusing the name of God, that third commandment that he gave his covenant people, that he was giving them his name and to protect it and to keep it good and pure and don't wear it to bring shame and dishonor and, and, and shame to his, to his name. Our public stances on social media matter. They matter because we wear the name of God. They matter. Be a voice of peace and calm in a world that is scared and fearful of the unknown. You have insight. Share it. Share it respectfully and share it boldly. Take the opportunity when things are clearly progressing forward in God's prophetic plan to talk about it. Point them to the source of truth, even if they reject it. But talk about it. Develop the boldness and the courage to talk about it. Understand the value of the body of Christ 
and its members. As different from you as they may be, get to know them. Don't be afraid of your differences. Value and build on the tie that binds, especially given what happened in Acts 2. But get down into the weeds and get to know the body of Christ, differences and all. Read God's word. He preserved it for us. And go all the way back to the beginning and know the story. Learn his law. We've seen what his law is. It's not a set of rules that we need to be fearful of, of, of to obey. It's part of the relationship that he has with us on how we can be assured that he will share all of the things that he said he would with us. If we only submit, that's all he's asked. Just submit. Just learn the expect, what I expect and follow it. But that takes work. That takes reading. That takes study. It's not meant to intimidate, but to teach the way to happiness. We heard in the opening prayer, be an overcomer. That's another thing we can do, is to be a, pro- a productive overcomer. Work at overcoming. I could go on and on and on and on. That's the beauty of this book. Pick it up. Open it anywhere. Value it. Treasure it. Learn it. But don't do nothing. Don't do nothing. Do anything but nothing. Pick it up. Open it anywhere. Learn it. Learn the story. We heard in this piece of special music, here I am, Lord, send me. Have that attitude. That's what we can do. Don't return to normal tomorrow as if nothing happened these last seven weeks. As we start to wind down, we still got a little bit to go, but as we start to wind down, what I'd like to do now is take a look at something that I hope helps us connect Torah, the law, to the renewed covenant that we've been talking about through the power of the narrative that we've been talking about for several weeks and conceptually tie in all that we have heard in these last seven weeks. We're not going to tie everything in from the last seven weeks, but I want to conceptually tie in that law, the renewed covenant, and the power of the story all go hand in hand. Allow me to share something with you that I saw during a recent personal study of mine. Allow me to share my interpretation of it. Allow me to share my interpretation of it for your consideration. Let's go to Romans 2. Romans 2. Romans 2, we're going to begin in verse 17. For context, we're going to, as we've been doing throughout this message, we're going to read to get the context. Verse 17 to the Roman church. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you, you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach one another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? So those who have been set up as teachers, who profess to be leading 
sages of God's way? Are they behaving in such a way that makes manifest what is inside them, that they actually believe what they say? Or is it something else? Are they really satisfied with how they feel and how it makes them feel, this this power? You who say, do do not commit adultery, verse 22, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God breaking through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is as it is written. And we talked about that third commandment. When you take the name of God upon you, we must act in such a way that does not bring shame and dishonor to that name. And here he's calling them out. That their behavior brought shame to that name that he lent them, that he gave to them. That's the context. Now let's read verse 25, which is where I wanted to go. Verse 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code in circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. My question is this. Is this actually saying that the only value in circumcision is if you were able to keep the law perfectly? And I mean that, as we talked about in our Discussion after the message yesterday. I mean this word perfect in the strictest sense of the word perfect. Is this saying that the only value in circumcision is if you are to keep the law perfectly? Maybe. Maybe that's what it means. And that's a good lesson to take from that. So therefore, circumcision, which was always a shadow of true circumcision of the heart, it says so. this is not a new concept that Paul brought to the table. This is back in the Torah. Through God, through Moses said so. We don't have time to go there, but look it up. It's there. So therefore, circumcision, which was always a shadow of the true circumcision of the heart, is really unnecessary as we read this. And Paul pointed this out in Acts 15. But is that the only way to look at it? Or is there another way to look at this? I submit to you that this could also be understood through the story we are talking about today. The story of the covenant people. Let me explain my thoughts here. Let's go to Acts 15. Acts 15. Verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So that's, again, the context that Paul 
the, the, the mindset that Paul could write about in Romans comes from this interaction that he and Barnabas had back in Acts 15. So my question is this. Was Paul disagreeing with the Pharisees or with the law or with both? Was Paul disagreeing with the Pharisees, with the law, or was he disagreeing with both? Did the law that God gave to Moses teach that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised? Was that what God said? Let's go to Genesis 17. Because the teaching of circumcision wasn't actually given to Moses. It was given to Abraham. And we see it here in the same section we went to when we talked about the covenant. Genesis chapter 17. We'll begin in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. And when we read this, it's not just Abraham. We're seeing the familial nature of this covenant, that it was to be passed on. And we've covered this before, generation to generation. That's important. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan. We, we, that was covered back in the message on freedom as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations. He keeps harping on that point, not just you, but for all of your successive generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner, he who is not, uh, who is not your descendant. He was born in your house, and he who was bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. We started out in verse 9 where it says, and God said. That's very important to start this. This is what God said. Also note that this was, as we said, this was to Abraham. Part of the initial covenant, long before Moses. We also read that every male child born into the covenant people must be circumcised. Also those who are living in their homes and were servants and all that stuff. And that that shall be a sign of the covenant. A sign to whom? The male child is what I propose. It's the male child that that's a sign to for obvious reasons that we don't really need to go into here. The male, it's a sign to the male child. The next generation of leaders of the families of the covenant people, that's his sign. That the patriarchs like Abraham, Moses, and Joshua made a decision. And here's what I'm, my, my thoughts, my interpretation, my thoughts for you to consider. That Abraham and Moses and Joshua and other patriarchs made a decision to have adults circumcised was an application of the law, but not the law as God gave it. And that was what Paul was pointing out. The intent was that this would be done at each successive generation 
to the male child. Once there were Gentiles being called into the faith, what Paul was actually clarifying was the law as God gave it, not as it was being practiced. Because we read previous to that in verses 17 through 24, all that they had had, uh, the word I can think of is bastardized. That they, all they had, they had torn apart from God and had mixed up and had, had, had pulled into their law. But it really wasn't God's law. Once Gentiles were being called into the faith, Paul was actually clarifying the laws God gave. What he was saying was to these adult Gentiles, because initially, remember, it was to be passed on through generation to generation. So someone coming into the covenant was not what that was about. You were to be part of the covenant from birth. But as Gentiles are being called into the faith, what Paul was saying was, don't worry about circumcision, physical circumcision for you. Get baptized. Have the Holy Spirit circumcise your heart. Much like baptism is a physical act that we undergo after we repent to impress upon our own minds that God has washed away our sins. That Much like that, the physical act of circumcision points to that of the heart. So worry about pulling yourself out of the world, Paul was telling these Gentile converts. Abstain from worshiping other gods. Stay sexually pure and morally upright. That's a big enough task right now for those coming into the faith than as an adult worrying about physical circumcision. But, and here's what I, again, is part of my thought process. Once you are part of the covenant people, your male children born into the faith should be circumcised as a newborn when it hurts the least and they won't remember the pain. Why? Because they will have a perpetual reminder. These future leaders of families will have a perpetual reminder that their father is or was part of the covenant people. That he, my father, upon my birth, passed this down to me, and I must value and protect my place in the covenant. And I must lead my family accordingly. That's the sign. And that, tr- that combines law, the new, the renewed covenant, and the narrative all into one. And I, and this, this future sign, this sign, this perpetual sign for the future leader of the, of the, his family into the covenant people. Circumcision, according to how God gave it to Abraham, was a way of passing the story on to the next generation. That's what it was about. Because it, circumcision of the heart was how it was explained to Moses as well. Remember what we said about the third commandment. God gave us his name. Wear it with pride and value it. Don't abuse it or bring shame to it. That's the message of the sign, this sign of the covenant. It's a perpetual reminder. I am part of a special group of people. Not because of who, where I am born, but because God extended his grace to accept my, my parents, my father, my mother into the covenant people. And they've passed this on to me as commanded by God. Let's go back to Romans 2 now and look at this again and view this today through the narrative now. Let's reread this. This additional explanation in addition to how we've been taught. 
for circumcision is indeed, verse 25, Romans 2, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to a group of covenant people who are a, who by birth were part of the physical covenant, were part of, were part of the covenant, sorry, not physical covenant, were part of the covenant, but had turned their back on the covenant. And they were distorting God's law, God's expectation. He's saying here, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If my dad circumcised me because he was part of the covenant people, I now belong to that entire story. That's how this links to narrative. With all the love and blessings God wants to ultimately bestow upon us, and with the expectations that will come with it as well. What he's saying here is if you are not a keeper of the law, if you are not blameless and upright, but not perfect, that other that other understanding of the word, the, the biblical word that is used as blameless or perfect. If you are not a keeper of the law, someone who guides their life according to God's law, who is blameless and upright, but not technically perfect. If you are a Christian in name only, but act outside of the terms of the covenant, your, your physical circumcision profits you nothing. You haven't got the message. You don't see the sign that you're, 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 you, you've been, you were bestowed a gift by your father to follow his steps into the covenant people. But your behavior profits you. You have, you didn't get the message. But if you are if a, a balanced and upright and a blameless person, who does his best to follow the law, you have a perpetual reminder that this was passed down from your father and you must guard it and protect it and pass it to the next generation. To me, that is an additional, deeper understanding of what Paul was trying to get at here. He wasn't in disagreement with the law, with the law of Moses. He was in disagreement about how the Pharisees were administering the law. Absolutely for sure. But he was in complete and total agreement with how God explained the law to Abraham that every male child shall be circumcised as a sign. A sign for who? Obviously the male child, that he was part of something special. If you are a dedicated follower striving to be better, striving to live according to the covenant, as we said, your circumcision is a perpetual reminder that you are part of a storied history went all the way back to the beginning of the Bible that we have covered today, all the way back, as far back as Genesis 4, when Seth replaced Abel as the seed of Eve. That is where the prophet of circumcision comes in. I'm part of the story, and I need to do my part to keep it going through the next generation. Walt Whitman, a 19th century American poet, wrote a profound poem entitled, O Me, O Life. And in it, he questions the meaning of life. I want to read that for you. And I want you to to put yourself in the mindset of someone who is not part of the story, who has no concept that this life matters. O Me, O Life, 
of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, of myself forever reproaching myself, for who more foolish than I and who more faithless? Of eyes that vainly crave the light, of the object's mean, of the struggle ever renewed, of the poor results of all, of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest, both the rest me intertwined, the question, O oh me, so sad recurring, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? His answer in his closing comments in his poem is inspirational to me as a member of the covenant community and with a family that I am leading in that covenant community. He concludes his poem with this after asking those, after making those observations and asking that last, that last, that last question. Oh, me so sad recurring. What good amid these? Oh, me, oh, life. Here was his answer that you are here. That life exists and identity, identity, which is part of the story, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What a blessing to be part of the renewed covenant, a renewal that dates all the way back to Acts chapter two, which is where we're going to close in Acts chapter two. As we come back together, Hopefully soon. And it's good to see other congregations in other states and countries that have been able to come back together. We haven't been so here. As we come back together, as places of worship begin to open up, as we come to the end of a truly inspiring Feast of Weeks, where do we begin when we get back at it? I suggest here. In Acts 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. We'll let God look after this last part of adding to the church daily those who were being saved. That's that's his part. We are part of a powerful story that we have heard about over the last seven weeks. It will continue, and it will play out, whether we are a part of it or not. But we have been invited into it, and we have accepted our place in it. It is on us to each contribute a verse. Wow. Thank you, Pastor Murray. Still in a search of words, what to say here at the end. And thank you for such a profound message to finish this time, to finish this Feast of Weeks, which culminated with this day on Pentecost. And yes, I was also wondering, on one hand, 
I was happy that we were so close to the Feast of Pentecost, and on the other hand, I was kind of sad. All this contact, the seven weeks, just went so quickly by, and everything was just over in one day. But thank you for giving us the idea what to do, what now. And yes, we do have a lot of work. And I appreciate, you know, my my mind is still spinning from the message I heard yesterday. And you throw something else here today that my mind is spinning even more now. So just apologize for my, not my confusion, but just how I'm inspired by the word of God that the identity of who we truly are. And I hope that all of you who have been joining us have the same feelings, the Feast of Pentecost. So, brethren, let's conclude this sermon. I will do the closing prayer, and then we come back to the last and closing hymns. But just one more time, just give me here a few seconds, just so I can collect my mind together, bring my back myself together here. Just bow your heads, brethren. Loving Father, great God, what an honor and what a privilege it is to be under the covenant. And to all of us who said, yes, there is a way of life to live. And what I heard today, Father, through the message of your servant, I would just say, help us. Help us to be faithful and help us to subject to you and to one another. We've heard a lot for the last seven weeks and even if we don't hear any message for the next three or four weeks. I don't know we'll have enough time to digest all the messages that are going through our system. And Father, as we parting the way today, help us. Help us to be the bride that you want us to be. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be busy and help us to see this world through your covenant, through through your love, and through your words. Father, we thank you for so many wonderful blessings. Thank you, Father, for protecting us through this coronavirus. Thank you, Father, for leading us and for guiding us. And thank you for your son who made it possible for this day to exist, not just to give us the law, but to give us the Holy Spirit, Father, so we can keep your law. Praises to you all. So, Father, one more time, we thank you for all these blessings and for everything in other name, but Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Brethren, it's just sad to say goodbye, but this is just the end of the, it's not the end of the day of Pentecost. They still have to wait till sunset and just 
As we go through the rest of the day, just don't forget there is a part to rejoice in. May God bless you all. May God keep you all. And hopefully see you back again here today at 2.30 on a Sabbath service. At this time, we'll have the closing hymn here, which is on page 23. The words will be projected on the screen. The, the hymn is 23. Guide me, O thou great eternal. May God bless you all.